Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we celebrate Christmas by watching slashers set in the summer. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. We're currently in the middle of our teen horror focus season and are diving into how the subgenre has evolved, how teenagers and the 27-year-old actors who played them have changed, and why teens make such fascinating horror protagonists. Before we dive into our episode this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK. And as good millennials, we also have a Patreon where you can support us at patreon.com forward slash The Final Girls. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate you leaving a little review over an Apple podcast. Consider it a little Christmas gift. And because I enjoy being a contrarian and sticking to a schedule equally, this week I'm bringing you a bit of Christmas counter-programming with a Somerset Slasher double bill. I know what you did last summer and its sequel. I still know what you did last summer. Full disclosure, I had not revisited these films in a long while, so watching them back-to-back was an experience. The first film, based on an unproduced Kevin Williamson script that was rushed into production after the success of Scream, was one of those sleepover jumpscare classics that is more meme than horror, but such a right to revisit. And joining me on this episode is the horror fan and horror VHS collector Ali Penelope, who makes her Final Ghost podcast debut with this extreme 90s double bill. Just a flag, there was something going on with Ali's mic, so there is a little bit of static that I wasn't able to take out in the edit. Please excuse that, and hopefully it won't impact your enjoyment of the episode too much. And with all of that said, wish you a Merry Christmas. Hope you have a lovely festive season filled with horror films and 90s nostalgia. And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on the I Know What You Did Last Summer double bill. We're gonna fry no matter who takes the fall. Can we leave right now? No way, are you crazy? The grill's busted. There's blood everywhere. We can clean it up. Come on. Listen to yourselves. No, we are going to the police. We don't have time for your shit. You understand? We gotta move fast. Hey, now let's try to stay calm. Focus. Don't you get it? If there's some of him on the car, there's some of the car on him. They're going to trace it back to you. You're looking at a hit and run. Then we dump the body. You lost it. Like, just pretend we were never here. We could drag him to the water and dump him in. They wouldn't find the fucker for weeks. By that time, all the evidence would be washed away. You found him at all? The currents are strong. The undertow could carry him out to sea. Ali, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm a little hungover now. That's but, what I like to hear. But you know what? That's really the best time to record a podcast about 90s teen horror films. I agree completely, especially when we're talking about the Jennifer Love Hewitt classics. I know what exactly. you did last summer. <laughs> exactly. Well, and also, it's the wrong time of year for this film, but I, I kind of love that we're <laughs> talking about these films, these, you know, July 4th classics. Mm-hmm. 
right before Christmas. I've never watched these films this time of year before, so it was a, a fun revisit. Do you know what? I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I actually completely forgot that these were based around the 4th of July. So oh. that was that was also a surprise for me re-watching them. I was like, oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> Christmas? <laughs> um, so Ali, since it's your first time on the podcast, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what's your relationship with horror? Yeah, absolutely. I I hate to say that I don't really have any kind of public facing stuff around horror, but I I work in digital media. I'm a partnerships manager for an amazing company called Little Dot Studios. We're a digital media agency, and I've been doing that for about five years. Uh, I started out as a content editor, so I would edit content for social media, and now I sort of oversee strategy and all that sort of stuff. But it's really rewarding because uh, social media and the digital media space is just constantly evolving, and I get to work with amazing using content, uh, not just horror content uh, or film content, but everything. All that stuff's great. And then, uh, you know, but on a personal side, I I am just a horror junkie. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it in any form. Let me watch it. Let me read it. Let me snort it. Let me inject it <laughs> in my body. Um, so I, I wanted to, I, I used to do a, briefly did a podcast with a friend of the pod, Mike Munzer from mm-hmm. Evolution of Horror, and our friend Dan. Uh, which was so fun, but it was tied in with something with work. And so they ultimately didn't want to take the project forward. And mm-hmm. I've been sort of looking to do something uh, since then because I I just love horror. I love talking about it. I love watching it. Uh, I've been reading a lot of it in quarantine. I'm a really big reader too. Mm-hmm. So lots of Stephen King in my life in the last uh, like 24 months. Oh, um, you're a King fan. I am a massive King fan to the point where it's, I feel kind of basic about it. Because there's a lot of – I've been trying to branch out this year. That was my goal because Mm -hmm. I realized I was just reading too much Stephen King. No such thing. (laughs) No such thing and no shame in being a constant reader. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I actually started reading some some Joe Hill. You know, I really branched out. <laughs> you branched out to the ch- to the children of Stephen ex- King. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I've been reading some Stephen Graham Jones, some Paul mm-hmm. Tremblay. And uh, it's it's been kind of nice to actually step away from films a little bit and just put my nose in a book and, uh, you know, just explore horror and its many many different uh, iterations. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's really exciting to have you in this podcast. We actually met sort of digitally. We've never met in person, which is one of the weird but fabulous things about but we've making been in podcasts. The sa- but we've been in the same physical space together. We just did not see each other. I know, so strange. Um, so I only know you as this, you know, digital voice that I've heard recording Kill Count with you, which is the, the podcast that you were re- referencing before, which was really fun to make. And and now recording, you know, in this as the disembodied voice talking about Stephen King, one of my favorite horror authors, and also my entry, my entry point personally into horror literature as well. I still remember when I was allowed to go into the the big girl section of my <laughs> local library, and the first I just beeline for the Stephen Kings. Yeah, well, I mean, it was like. I'm a big R.L. Stein fan, even now. Oh, yes. Even now. And I, I'll i tell you what, like if I'm folding laundry or I'm doing the dishes, I'll throw on an episode of Goosebumps because it's just, it's, so cute. it's like warm and cozy. And I feel like R.L. Stein and like Christopher Pike, those guys oh, are God, just yes. like Stephen King for kids. And then you're right, you get to go to the big girl section mm-hmm. and you pick out your first Stephen King book and then it's like all bets are off. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Arlstein, Christopher Pike were very much kind of the, the, oh, the appetizers for the big girl horror that was Stephen King. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you've recently, uh, gone back and and read any Goosebumps books, but they do not hold up. (laughs) I have not. I do remember being mocked by my parents because I just kept buying more and more Stephen, um, more and more Goosebumps books and Christopher Pike books to the point where it just got to the point where they're like, no, just go, go (laughs) to the fucking library. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. I I think I have, um, I have so many that my mom made me ditch because I just, she was like, I don't have the space for this anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and now all of my stuff is like sitting in her garage. <laughs> and it was mostly books. <laughs> and now as an adult, despite going through my teenage phase of kind of throwing away all the all those goosebumps and pike books, now I'm just trolling eBay looking for packages of those books being like, but I want them. <laughs> I know. I, I know. I've had to stop myself because, you know, we live in London with there's tiny, it's tiny spaces. Exactly. And I'm like, someday I'll own a home (laughs) every millennial's dream and i will have bookshelves in that home and then i can collect to my heart's content you know what i have a massive bookshelf that i'm looking at right now and it's not enough you know what it's never enough because now it's just they're just piling up all at every single corner that's available in my flat is piled high with books so you get the millennial dream and then it's still not enough it's like oh oh, no don't tell me that (laughs) i don't actually want to own a flat i just want to own a library just like bookshelves with a bed in the middle yeah absolutely (laughs) like did you ever watch oh gosh um Shelley Duvall's bedtime stories. No. It's like she this is my entry to Shelley Duvall, not the shining. Uh-huh. Sorry, we haven't even started talking about it. I know you did last summer yet. Um she did this, it was in this amazing child she would introduce children's books. Mm-hmm. And it was like, hi, I'm Shelley Duvall. Welcome to bedtime stories. And it was like a magical book like the set was like a book that would open up and it was like literally her bed and then the just the room was just surrounded by books and she'd grab a book and she'd open it and then the story would begin. It was great. I think it was from like the late 80s or the early 90s. I had them on VHS. I feel like I might need to reschedule this recording so I can just stop and go watch this. <laughs> it's great. They're great. They're so charming. Um, but you're right. We, we've we been kind of geeking out over horror books, which is definitely a conversation I want to continue. Um, I feel like we should meet in a cafe that is, <laughs> yeah. or in a library that's just surrounded by books. We're, we're here really to talk about these two teen horror slasher semi-classics let's call them but before we get into the i know what you did double bill can you tell me whether you're a fan of teen horror in general as a subgenre i would say teen horror is my favorite of the subgenres if i'm most honest because Mm -hmm. i i always like to think that like a really good ghost story is probably my favorite like i think for like peak peak horror for me that i really marinate in is like the changeling oh yes but if I'm honest about what I watch the most and mm-hmm. what I really enjoy, it's it's slashers. Mm-hmm. Acro- across the board slashers. But I think really honing in a 90s slasher, from, there's the nostalgia aspect for me. But I just mm-hmm. – the, the atmosphere, the the ambiance, the, the revitalization that happened in the 90s. Like it's just like lightning in a bottle with so mm-hmm. many of these films. And I mean, no, this is like the perfect uh, – I loved the, when you announced that you were doing the series because I was like – she made this series just for me. Because <laughs> all of them, I'm like, yes, that's a banger. That's a classic. That's a classic. 
Listen, to quote the the not so great Kendall Roy, this whole teen horror season is all bangers all the time. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's get into I Know What You Did Last Summer specifically. Don't you see? He's got us now. Okay, this is exactly what he wants. We can't go to the police. Not now. He's made sure of that. He's just out there and he's watching us and waiting. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? This is coming hot on the heels of what you very rightly call kind of the slasher revival of the 1990s, which came pretty much because of Scream. So before we dig into the film, can you, for anyone who's not rewatched, I know what you did last summer recently, can you briefly summarize the plot of the movie for me? Um, Okay, so I know what you did last summer is about four teens who are about to go into that last crazy summer before they enter the world of adulthood. And they're all prepared to have the best summer of their lives. But as they're driving home, uh, maybe there's some alcohol involved, maybe, they, they hit a man and they believe they've killed him. And so they're all dealing with the, the trauma of this event. And from then on, it sort of becomes a revenge film. And it flashes forward to the the following summer when they've all returned home and sort of in in various states of just like trauma and grief and just their lives falling apart due to the result of having to keep this secret. And then, you know, this presence starts to come back and maybe he didn't die. Maybe somebody knows what they did. And then the bodies just start stacking up. Beautiful summary. And I wanted to ask you, because you ref- we referenced the fact that this is very much part of the slasher revival of the 1990s. This was also a script penned by Kevin Williamson, who famously wrote Scream. Does it feel like a Kevin Williamson script to you? Well, it's hard to say, because Scream really is, it's the gold standard. Yes. You know, I, I really enjoy, I know what you did last summer, but Scream is obviously just its own thing. And you can't, it's not really fair to compare any other 90s teen horror film to it because it will always come up like it will always lose, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think for me, it doesn't necessarily, well, it does feel like a Kevin Williamson film Mm -hmm. because it reminds me more of like Dawson's Creek. (laughs) Oh. Maybe that's also the setting of the coastal town. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. because he did, he did some Dawson stuff, right? He created Dawson's. Mm -hmm. And that's all filmed in North Carolina. I don't know if it's set there. I think it might be. And so is this film. This film is uh, partially filmed and and set in coastal North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's the atmosphere I get. So it does feel very Kevin Williamson, but it doesn't feel very Scream. Yeah. And I think you're right. It it would be unfair to compare it to Scream too much because Scream was was like lightning in a bottle and it had this, you know, genius horror director who was already so established and already so known for establishing these these wonderful iconic franchises and a a very fresh-faced very young new screenwriter who had a completely different approach even generational approach to horror um what i do find very interesting is that it does feel like someone almost imitating kevin williamson i know that chronologically this screenplay came before scream so it does feel a little bit less um fully formed than that but i think some of the zingers specifically some of the humor that's that's left over in the script is where i could see kevin's style if that makes sense 
Yeah. Again, I think the reason it doesn't feel very Kevin Williamson is because if we're comparing it to Scream, that's as you were saying, like his it's such a collaborative effort with Wes Craven mm-hmm. that his his presence is just so felt there that I that trying to compare them I feel like it it does feel a bit more like Dawson's Creek. It feels a bit mm-hmm. more like uh, uh, like a Saturday morning episode of something. Um, I know what you mean about the imitation. Yeah, it's like it's like. Well, it was written. I think it was written first, right? It, mm-hmm. it wasn't. It was, the script was just sitting around gathering dust, and it then was, they were like, yeah. "Kevin Williamson, what's that guy doing after Scream? Let's get everything he's ever made into production." So, um, I kind of understand why it might feel that way because maybe he hadn't really come into his own yet. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more in depth about the the film itself. Kind of, what do you make of our key quartet of teenage characters? That's Julie, played by Jennifer Love Hewitt, Helen Helen Shivers, which is a great name for a character, played by Sarah, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, and Barry, the token jock douche boy, played by Ryan Philippi, and Ray. Perfect casting. <laughs> Perfect casting, and also Ray, the I guess other douchebag, but he's a fisherman and he's freddie prince jr he's like douchebag with a heart of gold yes you know (laughs) he he has a lot of pain built up inside and the only person who knows about it is julie james which again all of their names fantastic names julie james loving the alliteration because i feel like like final girls have great names in general but Uh, Julie on itself, it's like, oh, just it's her name's Julie, and it's like, no, it's Julie James. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, as you were saying, like Helen Shivers. I'm sorry, now I'm just talking about their names, but <laughs> the names are their names are great. Helen That's Shivers so to me. I'm like, why isn't she the final girl with a name like Shivers? Because mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Um, I mean, this is like this cast is 90s teen royalty, and I think that's the reason that this film it's elevated. Like we were talking about the Kevin Williamson script, but I think it's elevated by the sheer pop stardom of this cast. And that's why it's so lasting in terms of its legacy. Because, you know, I, I'm i not, I'd never watched like Ghost Whisperer or anything that, or I didn't really watch Party of Five when uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt was on it, but I'm a massive Buffy fan. And this was right, right around the same time Buffy was starting. So she probably didn't have that same, uh, people didn't associate her with Buffy in the same way as they would now in retrospect watching it. But, uh, and then, you know, it's just like the Sarah Michelle Gellar starring with Freddie Prince Jr. I'm like, is this, I know what you did the sum. Is this, I know what you did last summer. Is this Scooby-Doo? I don't know. It's just like, I, I, it's delicious. I want to eat it all up. Like, I just want to marinate with these characters and these, these actors in this time and place, because it doesn't really matter what they're doing to me on screen. They're just so mm-hmm. watchable. Totally. And it's so, you're so right also in in saying that it was kind of pop stardom because all these four actors individually would become so associated with this particular teen movie uh, revival and kind of golden age in the 90s. You know, Freddie Prince Jr. was the the kind of the, the dreamboat of teens in the 90s. And he like he doesn't he exist outside of that. And obviously, Sarah Michelle, Michelle Geller is very iconic because of Buffy. But like her her on screen roles 
very much sit alongside that, and they've almost always been in genre stuff too. And Jennifer Love Hewitt is probably the the biggest star at the time because of her already kind of child star career and because of Party of Five, which I think came to an end about a year after this film came out. She was like a sex symbol in the late 90s as well. So it's just these gorgeous, beautiful young actors who so are the teen heartthrobs of this entire decade it kind of doesn't even matter what the plot is because you just want to watch them wear tank tops and run around and have conversations with each other that are vaguely resembling what teenagers might sound like exactly exactly i think that's that's why i keep coming back to this film because i'm just like i i have no i honestly the plot gets a little convoluted at points i'm just like let's just watch them hang out in like coastal North Carolina, as you say, in midriffs, they're just having a good time. Uh, there, there's some crabs at some point. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, there's like, <laughs> there's like other supporting cast. I was like, Big Bang Theory man showed up. I oh don't watch God, the yes. Big Bang Theory, but I was like, I know that face. Johnny Galecki being <laughs> like, an asshole. Wait, he did yes. movies before. Yes. Oh gosh. Psycho remake lady. Oh, what's Anne her Heche. name? And it too, playing Miss it. Yes. And she's so spooky in this movie. And there's just, it's a great supporting cast too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, I mean, it really is about those four iconic characters, but um, no, they're great. They're all great. Can you expand a little bit on what you think about Julie James as a final girl? Well, what I'll say is this, you know, in the slasher genre and you have your final girl, you usually don't care about the other characters dying. And mm-hmm. so you're kind of like, you kind of really root for the final girl, but the I don't feel like the film ever really aligns itself with anybody else. So you don't really care mm-hmm. when, you know, the blood starts flowing. In this case, I genuinely, I think that this film is the one where I feel most devastated by a death. Mm-hmm. And I know we're, we already said spoilers, we're in spoiler territory, we're kind of yeah. talking about the plot already, but I am just so sad that Helen is also not the f- a final girl. In this, oh, I hate. Yeah. I I almost like maybe it's because I just love Sarah Michelle Gellar so much, but she deserves to be the final girl almost more than Julie, I think. And I, I, I just, I feel her character is just so broken, mm-hmm. and she's she had all these aspirations. You see who she is right at the beginning, and you're like, I know who this this bitchy character is. But mm-hmm. then she's so much more than that, and it's so devastating to see what her home life is like with her, mm. her, you know, her absent, I mean, her father, her, she has no mother there. Her father's completely checked out. Her sister is clearly wildly jealous of her. Mm-hmm. And she's just, she's tried to make it in the big wide world of New York City and she had to come crawling back home with her tail between her legs. And she's just broken. And she just wants her friend Julie back. And it's it's heartbreaking. And then to top it all off, her death is like, so, I mean, that scene with her death is like probably one of the most iconic scenes in in teen, like in slasher history, mm-hmm. I think. And it's also extremely effective because before she actually gets murdered, she also gets kind of tortured by, you know, having the the hookman go into her room, cut her hair off while she sleeps and leave her a nasty message so that there's so much taunting of Helen going on. Yeah, the poor girl, man. She just, she needs a break. She's, and I just, my heart goes out to Helen. Helen Shivers, like, what a character. Julie James, eh. Less interesting. I'll say, yeah. I think Julie is a, f- she's less interesting. But, and, but that's the thing about 
characters that are the goody two shoes from the beginning. That's why Ray is so boring. <laughs> well, but also because they're trying to do the red herring thing with Ray. So they don't really give him that much, but it just means that he's boring. And you're like, I don't care about this guy. Um, it's like, I don't like Barry, but he's more interesting to watch. I mean, I don't know if I agree because I just find Barry so, it's just so uninteresting in a really aggressive kind of way. Like he, keeps trying he keeps yelling at situations and he keeps getting it trying to fight people and then when he does fight ray he is so bad at fighting i'm like oh you were just such a slimy little shit just keep going back to punching unmoving objects because he clearly cannot throw a real punch man and he's just so mean yeah, he's I'm too like pretty he's too pretty for the role that they've cast him in yeah, I mean, Ryan Phillippe is kind of perfect because he does have that, like, I'm too pretty and I know it and I'm going to be a sleazebag just because I know you you still want to look at me even though I'm being an absolute dipshit. He's perfect for that. He does the same thing in Cruel Intentions. Good for him. He looked great. But yeah, I, we don't really get to know Barry or Ray that much. They only really exist in order to add something to the to the girls, really. Yeah, it's true. I think I I wish there there had been a little bit more uh dimension between Julie and Helen's relationship because mm-hmm. there is that scene, you know, where they they they've gone to see Missy's character and she's yes. like I just miss you. I miss you. And oh my god, and it's Julie like, doesn't say anything. It's so heartbreaking. Yes. And I I think the thing that frustrates me about Julie is that she has this sort of moral superiority about her mm-hmm. where, you know, she's like we should have gone to the you know she clearly wanted to go to the police i think judges everybody else in the group for choosing to keep that secret mm-hmm. and i'm like but girl you're still keeping it too yes we've spoken about the our lead teenage characters but we haven't really spoken about the villain yet so what do you make about the hookman both as an urban legend would they which they retell at the start and as the main slasher villain well, the funny thing with this is I it's a chicken and an egg situation because mm-hmm. I think to myself, when did I first hear about the Hookman? Yes. And I because I, you know, I grew up with that legend too, but I think was it because I'd watched this film? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's the same thing with the film or I think well, this film came before Urban Legend, right? The the other Yeah, yeah it came yeah. before. Um because I think if anything those films and this film and that film just really brought those – how popular were those urban legends before is what I want to know because it's like now it's all in retrospect. I have no idea like what the the vibe and the atmosphere was at the time of the the filming and when that film came out. So I'm like how did, – did your average Joe know about the Hookman or mm-hmm. was this sort of like a made for – for the movie, and then it sort of became popular culture as a result. I'd be curious to to dig more into that. But as a as a villain himself, he's not very interesting. <laughs> uh, I think I wish I cared more about the who done it. But I think it's everything else along the way. It's it's the journey, not the destination. With in this case, because I think they try to make it seem like it might be Ray for a while, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the writing was always on the wall that it wasn't going to be one of the four. And because it wasn't going to be one of the four, well, then did I really care who it was going to be? Yeah, it feels like um, 
like the red herring of trying to frame Ray as potentially the the killer would have been more interesting, but also completely like you knew from the start that that was never going to happen. But yeah, the Hookman just is just such a faceless legend and such a faceless villain, and. And it's interesting when I was rewatching this film, I kept thinking, "Wait, who was the Hookman again? Like, what <laughs> yeah. was what was the thing?" I remember there was a twist, but the twist is so unmemorable. Yeah, it's Be- convoluted. It's really convoluted. Yeah, what do you what do you make of the of the reveal of Ben Willis being the being the Hookman? Well, I to be honest with you, I had watched this film like relatively recently, within the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And even rewatching it now, it's like, who's the hookman again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I couldn't remember. Uh, because I feel like it's very convoluted. Like I there's because the film opens with the shot of the character that you think they killed. Mm-hmm. I forget his name, but the teenage boy that accidentally killed his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, is he going to commit suicide? Is he, what is he doing up there on the cliffs? Who is this kid? And then I I guess like when they go to the house to speak to his sister, at that point, I'm like, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a little bit clocked out. I'm <laughs> like, like, who are we talking about? <laughs> um, and then it's, so the premise is, I just want to make sure I've got it right. So it's, they think they've hit this kid mm-hmm. who was out there because he, he, was in a car crash with his girlfriend the summer before that, and she died. Mm-hmm. The actual killer is the girlfriend's father who yes. killed him, uh, seeking revenge for his daughter, and then they hit him, mm-hmm. and now he's, I guess, A, seeking revenge. Well, he's seeking revenge on the kids because they they hit him and then they tried to kill him. Mm-hmm. But also B, maybe a sort of like a, I have to take seek revenge on all teens everywhere for, for being – you know, for drinking and driving and being teens. Yeah. It's kind of the vibe. So it's it's convoluted. It's a big like boomer villain in many ways where the motivation <laughs> is very much, you know, oh, you damn kids just messing around and, you know, running people over with your fucking cars all the I'm time. shake my hook at you. Yeah. <laughs> Which he literally does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the hook is kind of iconic, I guess. The hook is great. And to be honest, like it does, some of the kills are really, are really powerful because it is just this one thing. And he's not a supernatural villain. He's just this hulking presence that has a hook that he can clearly wield like an expert. But yeah, it's, it's convoluted. And the story itself, like, doesn't, doesn't actually pay off that much, the motivation wise. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. No, and it's, again, in terms of kind of going back to the main characters, too, mm. they they try to make it seem like Julian Ray or Endgame. Mm-hmm. And I'm not buying that for a hot second. Why, though? Like, why? <laughs> yeah. they Okay. They're, again, these, these two actors have great screen presence. Mm-hmm. I don't think they have great chemistry. No. And it's really, I mean, also, it doesn't help that in my mind, I'm like, Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Geller. Our like, end game. Yeah, right? So mm-hmm. you're just, you're like, this is weird. And I do love that line, though, at the beginning where he's like, <laughs> it's like, nobody understands me like you do. She's like, I understand your pain. Oh <laughs> like, God. okay. Like, okay, Kevin Williamson, like, reel it in a little bit, buddy. Um, but them, like, the idea that she thinks for a while that it's Ray. Mm-hmm. And then 
in the span of like 15 minutes, she goes from think, thinking that it's Ray to realizing it's not Ray and being saved by him, kind of, and then being like, oh, I love you. It was always meant to be you. I'm like, man, there's a lot of emotional whiplash happening here for such a smart girl, supposedly. I know. And for two characters who were not even like, there was a little bit of, mm, yeah, maybe, 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 but like, there was no longing looks. There was no build up to that relationship. Like, what are we, why are we supposed to be reading for them? Really? Aside from the fact that they're just there and they're both hot. I mean, that's the reason. That's the reason, Anna, because they're both just so hot. <laughs> That's not a character. That's not a character trait. They're both hot. Well, that's the thing about Ray. It's like they, I think the script suffers from trying to make him a red herring because Mm -hmm. then you just can't do anything with him because uh, it's like all the other characters have such uh, interesting run-ins with the killer early on in terms Mm -hmm. of him letting them know, I'm here, I'm watching you. And Ray's like, I got a letter. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> he doesn't even... Also, I don't think Freddie Prince Jr. can ever quite do menacing at all. No. Like, even in that split second when Julie thinks that he is Billy Willis because of the name of the boat, and he's sort of like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, let me explain. He just runs after her. And it's supposed to be in that moment that we think, oh, maybe he is the killer or he's associated with the killer in some way. He's just very bad at being menacing. He always has that puppy dog energy that is he completely does. impossible to, like, he doesn't, bless him. I think he's great. Range is not his friend. So no, he can't no. really pull off being aggressive or menacing. Whereas, you know, Ryan Phillippe, full on psycho. Yeah, and they never tried to make it seem like, I ne- they never went in that direction, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But he is, Ryan Phillippe, I'm, I mean, I don't want to get into, you know, what his personal life is like in real life, but he genuinely is terrifying as yeah. a presence. I'm like, I know this man, like this man, like this man exists and is walking around mm-hmm. as like an archetype of of how men behave, mm-hmm. and it feels really real. Like <laughs> he feels like the real villain to me. Absolutely. And, and you know, when there's that scene as well where he just grabs, I think it's Julie, like literally grabs her by the neck and nobody nobody says anything, including Ray. Yeah. I know. Well, that's the other thing about Ray. He's like, what a wet blanket. I'm like, he just, I don't know. He's He goes along with everything uh, when that happens. I feel like uh, I keep saying Ryan Felipe, Barry. Uh, mm-hmm. Barry is, he very much takes control of the situation once they actually hit the mm-hmm. the guy, even though he's the drunkest, he's yeah. the most the one with the most logic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess kind of maybe that's the way team, you know, that's the nature of those sort of situations. It's like you never react the way you would think you should react. But it's Ray is just what I I'm sorry, sorry, Freddie Prince Jr. But you're Ray is such a useless character. <laughs> he really is. Like I think for the thing that really stands out to me rewatching these films is that it's all about Julie and Helen. And as we were talking about before, Helen Shivers actually gets the most, uh, the biggest character arc and the most gruesome death as well. Yeah, I'd love to like dive into that scene because mm-hmm. I think I think like if people think this film's mediocre, which how dare they? Uh, <laughs> then the one thing they do always say is, "Oh, but that chase scene, that that death scene mm-hmm. with Helen is so is is like it's iconic." And I yes. really, ble- I mean, it is it's so good and it's so devastating. And every single time I watch it, 
I think the ending's going to be different. Mm-hmm. Every single time, I'm like, she's going to make it. She's going to make it this time. And it's it's heartbreaking and it's gruesome and it's – I mean, it's not the ending this character deserves, but it is – it's just it's just so well orchestrated that whole scene. It's also perhaps the one kill that doesn't depend on cheap jump scares as much as the rest of the movie. Now, what do you make of how this film uses or perhaps abuses the jump scare? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I I'm the kind of person that is not scared by jump scares, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm startled. Yeah. So, which is, a, you know, they're different things. And I can't help that I'm a naturally jumpy person. So I always, I'm always the one to jump in a jump scare, even mm-hmm. when I see it coming, which is just kind of frustrating. <laughs> um, because, you know, it's, for me, it's the character stuff that's really more scary about this. And the trauma that all these characters are experiencing is mm-hmm. really, uh, is what you connect with. So it's a shame that the film does feel a bit cheapened by kind of these continuous jump scares or fake fake out jump scares um i mean the endings being kind of the endings of both films sort of being the 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 most grievous error <laughs> yes uh, in that respect so yeah it it really surprised me um just how much it relies the, how much the horror of the films rely on the jump scare and we'll definitely get to the to the ending bit but um i wanted to talk to you as well about kind of the the gore aspect of it so the actual kills we've talked a lot about helen's uh, helen's death scene but with the rest of them it does feel weirdly bloodless for a slasher film yeah it is i mean all i could think of when i was re-watching it was um for a man who's going around gouging people with a hook, mm-hmm. it's there's a there's not a lot of crimson on screen. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I feel like is the film rated PG thirteen in the states? I mean, maybe that's just the case of the demographic, and rather than ma- they wanted because in the states, you know, you're going to miss mm-hmm. your your R rated demographic from a, like that perspective. It kind of makes sense. Um. I also feel like with the jumps, going back to the jump scares very quickly, I feel like. This might have just been a, a poor assumption on the filmmaker's part that that's kind of what they needed mm-hmm. to make this film interesting and exciting for the teen demographic that they were trying to hit. Mm. It's like people will think it's too boring if it's, you know, Shining-esque. <laughs> I don't know why I'm going to the Shining in my mind, but that's like <laughs> a slow moving, a slow moving film mm-hmm. with, you know, no jump scares. And they were like, no, no, it's the teens. The teens are coming to see this. We have to put in the jump scares because that's what they want. Uh, so I think it's that, that to be fair, though, that then doesn't necessarily tie into the blood thing because you think that they'd want more blood on screen. But again, I think it maybe is just a case of like, we don't want to have to make it rated R, which is mm-hmm. kind of a boring answer. But but it depends a lot of decisions. And there's also like, I think that that thing about trying to appeal to teens uh, instead of, you know, necessarily seasoned horror fans can really be felt in the performances and the dialogue as well. I mean, we can't not talk about the moment when Jennifer Love Hewitt just spins around yelling, what do you want? <laughs> at the sky. There's like a, camp- uh... there's a campness to this film. Yeah, and that's why when people say it's not good, I'm like, okay, it's I guess it's not good in the sense that it's like an auteur's finest work, but it's great in in that it's 
Well, it's also so. Let's compare it back to Scream. Like mm-hmm. Scream is so self-aware of itself, and it's always like winking at the audience mm-hmm. and like nudge, nudge here. You know, we're, we know what we're doing. Whereas this plays itself really straight. Yes, but it is still very campy. Which, you know, when you think about things like Friday the Thirteenth mm-hmm. or any of its imitators, sort of is it's a similar atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I think this film is paying homage to earlier 80s slashers in a much more direct and earnest way. Mm -hmm. And I think that the campy dialogue plays into that. Okay. And and I think it's – I'm along for the ride. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want this film to be – I don't want the dialogue to be great. I want those moments where she's spinning around and screaming at the sky Mm -hmm. because it's just more fun to watch. And that's what I want from a slasher. And what do you think it owes to the slashers of the of the eighties and the late seventies? What do you mean by owes? Like, well, I think you're right in that it, it's a mo- it's a much more straightforward, straight lace slasher film because it's not it's not trying to poke fun at the genre like Scream is. It's not trying to satirize it or or upend it in any way. It's trying to tell a very simple. Stabby, stabby story. Kind of yeah. How how do you think kind of it it what do you think it owes in that in that sense to the slashes that came before it? Not necessarily of the time, but like in the late seventies and the nineteen eighties, especially. Well, I think the biggest difference for me is that there's clearly an homage happening. They clearly are taking like they're following the footsteps of those earlier iterations mm-hmm. of slashers in the late seventies and early eighties. But I think it's the it's the dedication to actually creating – I mean, we've talked about Barry and Ray not being fully fleshed out characters, but Julie and Helen mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's – it's sort of like – it feels like a 90s reinvention on something that had become really hackneyed by the end of the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like how can we take a really tried and true straightforward slasher but actually make you care mm-hmm. uh, a little bit when when someone gets killed? That's a fair point. And we we kind of alluded to it before, but what do you think about the fake out ending? I always I remember this ending. Mm-hmm. This is if I remember anything from this film, it's well, it's the Helen scene and it's the ending. Okay. And well, and also, I mean, we have to go back in the spinning around and screaming at the sky. I mean, <laughs> yeah. those are like that's the holy trinity of this film. Mm-hmm. And I I, I'm going to just, I'm going to double down and I'm going to say the ending is sort of in alignment with like the dialogue of the film. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily in alignment with like the way that the film's been pretty straightforward up until that point. But again, like there's been fake jump scares, through, like a lot of jump scares throughout. And it's like, I'm fine with that ending. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it's like you thought you were safe, you get a little wham-wham punch, and then the lights go up, and, you you know, you walk outside, and, and you continue your day. I feel like, I, I like that. I like it. It's good. <laughs> it's the sort of ending that you're like, oh, so you, you're already thinking about the sequel. Will it make sense? Probably not, but you're also, like, implying that your lead final girl is gonna get murdered, but you're not gonna see the murder, and then you will conveniently ignore this ending when you actually do the sequel well saying that i mean if we're talking about how it it uh pays homage to to 80s classics i mean Mm -hmm. it's friday the 13th yeah and it's the same thing because that actress comes back at the part Mm -hmm. two Mm -hmm. and i guess it's the question of like is this reality is this a nightmare is Mm -hmm. this trauma uh 
And I guess maybe in Friday the 13th, it feels a bit more dreamlike because it's like, why is she floating a canoe in the middle of the, the lake? Mm-hmm. Whereas this feels like a more grounded kind of, she, we understand the situation she's in. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what it's doing. I think it's, again, it's it's the, the carry hand coming up through the ground. It's that final punch to the audience's gut before mm-hmm. credits roll. And they just felt like they needed to do that with all guns a-blazing. And on that note, shall we move on to talking about the sequel? I still know what you did last summer. I I have to appreciate, yes, yes, I'll say yes. And then also, I love that they called it, I still know what you did last summer instead of, I know what you did last summer too. I love that too. I think it's like one of the best names for a sequel. Because it's also this thing of like, I'm still here. I still know. (laughs) And I know that you still want to continue watching the slasher movie. Although saying that, it was a wham, bam situation watching them back to back. Like, <laughs> what do you I mean? Re- well, I'd never watched these movies right back to back before. Uh huh. And then, you know, rewatching to discuss with you, I watched them back to back, and that was a wild ride. Like just the the the, the whiplash that I experienced, mm-hmm. to- like tonally, and just the atmospheres of the films are so different. I mean, we could get into it, but yeah. <laughs> so let's get into it. Let's um before we dive into I still know, what can you briefly summarize where this film picks up from the events from the first one? Yes. So it picks up the next summer uh after the events of I know what you did I know what you did last summer. Mhm. And wow, how do I even describe this movie? It is probably the most absurd premise for a slasher sequel. Because <laughs> uh, the, the filmmakers really did think to themselves, they're like, what if this time we go to the Bahamas? So it's basically the premise of the first film, but in the Bahamas. And they also were like, maybe we should have some racial diversity because it was a pretty white movie the first time around. So we'll do that. And then they also were like, we got to have another twist. So there's there's another twist on top of it that, again, very convoluted. So uh, I, I haven't described this film. I'm terrible at describing movies is what I've discovered through this, this process of talking to you, Anna. But I hope I've <laughs> teased the film well enough that folks are interested. I mean, basically, it's you're, you are correct. It is the same thing, except they have to find a reason to get these characters in an isolated place where where there's a lot of water because we're back to the hookman, we're back to the fisherman vibe. They need to be surrounded yes. by water and fishing boats. Uh, Ray is out of the picture for most of the film. Thank God, though. I mean... Yeah, truly. Uh, and yet still, he somehow manages to be annoying. I, yes. Oh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where is Julie James when we meet her? Because she seemed pretty happy at the end of the first film. She's like, oh, I'm I'm done with my trauma. My hair is clean and shiny again. Because you can, <laughs> you know, the, the character expressions are very much presented through the hair. So when Julie is upset and depressed, her hair is really lackluster and flat and, um, <laughs> and has lost its shine. And then when she's happy again and bubbly, her hair looks wonderful. So her hair is looking great at the beginning of this one. Uh, and where, What's her life like when we meet her here a few the summer after the events of the first film? Yeah, well, it's a it, this is where watching them back to back, I think 
it fall like it, it doesn't make sense because as you say, the end of the last one, she's like perky Julie again. Mm-hmm. She's she's surpassed her trauma. She's happy with Ray. She's back at university, and then in this one, it's like she's doing summer school. So is she's I mean the film literally wakes it's a starts with a dream sequence of her being still traumatized and screaming and waking up in class and she's clearly still completely traumatized mm-hmm. to the point where she doesn't want to return to Southport and uh that place for her a place of such trauma that she can't think about going back there but then she it's it's again it's it's a very strange one because she seems traumatized but then Within the span of a scene, she'll be really upset and then bounce back to being smiley again. Mm-hmm. Um, like <laughs> when she's she, uh, you know, she's traumatized and comes home and is uh, like reflecting on uh, not being able to go back to Southport. And then the next minute, she's in a club dancing. So it's I think Julie is a mess, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Julie Julie doesn't know how Julie is uh, <laughs> at the beginning of I still know what you did last summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's it. So she's in. It's never made quite clear because she was in college already in the last film, and now we're guessing she's still in college, maybe grad school, perhaps. Well, that's the thing is because they had to set it at Fourth of July, of course, uh-huh. because it has to be on the anniversary of the the the, uh, the death. But you don't go to school. And at least in the States, you don't go to school on July 4th. Like, that's not when class would be in session. So they're like, oh, it's summer school. Like, they, they kind of have to make it work because they wanted her to be in college. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's again, it's just a bit like – I could see all of the gears and, like, levers being pulled where the filmmakers are desperately trying to make this scenario work. <laughs> <laughs> so she is kind of a downer in college. Her roommate is Brandy. Um, I mean – Brandy it plays the character Carla and and Brandy at this point is like we should say a mahoosive star so she had already like been a successful musician and she'd already been starring in Moesha her uh the sitcom that she was the the titular character of for years so this is a big deal like Brandy and Jennifer Love Hewitt in this film and then they win a radio competition by guessing incorrectly <laughs> what the capital of Brazil is. It is not Rio de Janeiro. So I, when I was watching this, I remember being like, oh, so this was kind of planted from the beginning that this was a full-on setup because A, it was really funny to think, oh, you can't just Google this on your phone really quickly. But at the same time, that is not the capital of Brazil. You're going to get slaughtered. Well, here's the thing is like how much the 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 film trusts the audience not to know that mm-hmm. <laughs> because you know it goes down one of two paths either you're smart enough to know that that's not the capital of Brazil and you immediately know it's a con mm-hmm. or you're you know in the dark with with Carla and J- uh, Julie and you're like oh okay so this is weird but I guess you know they're the I guess they're going to the Bahamas mm-hmm. so it's that's the thing is I. I'm like, do they expect this? Do they expect everyone watching this movie to know that this isn't true? And also, Julie's painted, at least from the the beginning of the first film, to be this intelligent young woman. I'm like, how does she, how do neither one of these young women who are, you know, edu- you know, university educated, not know what the capital of Brazil is? <laughs> I mean, 
as someone who is terrible at geography, I'm not going to judge them, but even I know the capital of Brazil. Yeah, I don't know. That that to me is like, again, this film, writing is not its strong suit. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things about this film that are not strong suits, <laughs> but that is like the, the, the very loosely threaded plot is, it's just dangling from the very beginning. Well, let's talk about the the new characters in this film because we have Julie, we have Ray, Ray who is mostly on the phone with Julie, thank God. Um, but we also get Carla, who we mentioned, who's played by Brandy. We get Tyrell, her boyfriend, who's played by Mackie Pfeiffer. And we get the new character, the absolutely charmless I know. charisma vacuum of Will Benson. And, you know... Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Ben's son. Will yes. Will is the Will is performing the Ray thing of oh, I'm the the cute, soft spoken new boy, but also actually the killer. I feel like the like the character type of Will is feels like a '90s teen archetype. Okay, I I feel like. I'm trying to think of it, but I feel like there's multiple films where there's a character like Will. Mm-hmm. In, se- in sequels specifically, I'm, I guess I'm thinking of like Scream 2 as well, um, where like the the character is – maybe I'm also thinking of the fact that he's the son of the killer because mm-hmm. isn't he like his mother – in Scream 2, it's like a mother-son killing duo. So I don't know. It so feels in, very – In Scream 2, it's uh, it's Billy Loomis's mother, but it's Billy Loomis is the killer in Scream 1. Yes. So I'm getting big Billy Loomis vibes from Will, but at the same time, um, the Derek vibes from Scream 2. So that's Sydney's boy- college boyfriend played by Jerry O'Connell, who is just the most vanilla, beige, bland type of white boy who she dates in in university and it's just like charisma is not a word he knows exists yes and that's why maybe i'm thinking like this feels like an archetype because it Mm -hmm. just he he's so kind of he just blends together with so many other characters from other films in my mind yeah and and it's also like you know well you know carla and you know tyrell are not going to be the killers but it's like mm-hmm. oh who's this mysterious white man who they're just like throwing into the film yeah it's of course he's of course this isn't gonna end well <laughs> <laughs> um, but i i love i love seeing brandy on screen she's a pure joy and i like i do like that she i think that this could have gone down a very kind of dangerous road of like making her like a sassy female black character and i don't think the film completely falls into that trap. I think Carla's an interesting character who's a bit like who's fairly well-rounded for the, the you know, for the type of film it is. Um I love when she that I think you have a scene like where she's like I'm going to change my major to finance so that mm-hmm. I can so that I can become a rich woman and go to Wall Street and then like go on holidays like this. So it was like I don't know, this is like she's fun. She has more personality to her than just Julie James's like roommate, mm-hmm. which I feel like Again, I, this is why I'm thinking of Scream 2, because it's a similar, there's a lot of like parallels in terms of the types of characters we're getting. Totally. And I think you're right in that Carla is a much more, again, similarly to Helen Shivers in the first one, Carla is a better character than Julie James is yes. in this film. She's got more stuff to do. She's got ambitions. She's doing stuff. She's like an active character. And she also, you know, and she, she survives. 
Yes. Oh, well, that's the other thing. That's Which is where- really important, especially because, yes. and there's, you know, not to self-plug, but there's a great article that um, Isora Barbara Brown wrote, I think the first one that she ever wrote for the final girls about Carla and kind of the absence of of black final girls in in this era and in slasher films in general and she's she's important for many reasons not just not just that but i think she she's again kind of the standout character of the film not so much julie no i totally agree with you and it's as as sad as i was about helen dying mm-hmm. in the first film i'm i'm that much more excited that carla they decided to let her live because mm-hmm. like again kill julie i don't care at this point <laughs> i like the girl deserves it at this point she's just like how i just I, i'm done with julie james i don't find her that interesting but no but carla's mm-hmm. i'm really glad that she made it to the end and i would personally watch another sequel where carla is in it <laughs> totally we don't really need julie that much i mean i think mecky pfeiffer with, with tyrell doesn't really get that much to do except just be horny all the time yeah <sighs> give He's it a, a comic rest. relief He's, yeah which is fine it's fine but i, I feel like again it's, it's similar to what we were saying about barry and ray mm. the, the girls really are the stars here and it's like yeah. they have their little their little boyfriends along for the ride so i'm kind of okay with that mm-hmm. and i also sorry to uh Speak Go over for you. It. I, I feel like we're leaving out a very important character from this film, uh, which is Jack Black. Oh my god! <laughs> I was gonna bring it up at some point, and then, but then I also don't want to because Jack Black, <laughs> my dude, what it's, are you doing? What are those choices? It's, it's well, and also like, I was because I'm thinking about like where Jack Black was in his career at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like he wasn't a household name yet. I think he was just showing up in like bit parts and things. But, whew, I mean. For anyone who doesn't (laughs) remember this, Jack Black, who I think is uncredited as well in this film, plays a character, a hotel employee called Titus Telesco. That's his name. I That's his told, name. I, I looked it up. To- I could not have told you his name if you'd put a gun to my head. <laughs> I, me either, but I looked it up for the purposes of being professional. And I was like, it made it worse. It made it worse. I would have preferred if he continued being unnamed. He plays Titus Telesco, who goes around with a Hawaiian shirt, dreadlocks, and keeps trying to talk in a fake Caribbean accent, offering weed to everyone. It's, 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 it's so bizarre. It's, why did they put this in the film? It's so strange. It's like simultaneously remarkably cringy and obviously super on PC, but also like, because of that, it, it turns back around again on itself to the point where I'm like, I'm, am I laughing? <laughs> like, is it, is it actually funny? It's just like, it's just very uncomfortable. <laughs> it's just, it's just bad. I think it is just bad. And to be honest, I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of glad when he gets murdered. <laughs> like, okay, bye, Titus. It was not nice knowing you. Well, it's like, again, yeah, he serves no point, I guess, except they thought, like, they throw him in for a bit of comic mm. relief, which, you know, they missed the mark on that one. But, he serves no other point to the plot as far as I'm, like there's no like structural reasons why he's in the film. No. I mean, th- there's a few things in this film where they try really aggressively to be funny and it just kind of doesn't land at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird to me because like the first one again, like the dialogue was a bit 
campy at times, but it was still very straightforward. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe they just they just leaned full cheese in this one. They just they all bets were off. Yeah, and also this is not this is not an early Williamson script. This is someone completely different, and obviously not as um, not Kevin Williamson. Right, and you also have oh, Reanimator Man. Jeffrey Coombs, yeah. Jeffrey Coombs, yeah. I was gonna say the the kind of the faces that pop up in this film are amazing. So we've got Jeffrey Coombs pop up as the hotel manager. Um, we've got John Hawks pop up as a fellow fisherman. Did you yeah. see him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was fun. I I mean, I always love it in horror films when there's sort of these other faces from the mm-hmm. genre that that pop up and. Jeffrey Coombs in particular is, I mean, he's got such a recognizable look. Yes. Even though, you know, I mean, I know him from Reanimator, but mm-hmm. he, he's he's much older in this. But you, it's still like the moment you see him, you're like, what are you doing here? And he's he's great in it. I think, like, I wanted more Jeffrey Coombs personally. <laughs> and also you've got Jennifer Esposito who plays the, like, the coyote ugly-ish uh, mean bartender who then gets involved with the kids. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I forget, like, well, I guess the other thing about it being a sequel is that you need more bodies, right? Yes. And it's I, I love that for they're like it's an isolated place in the Bahamas, but the characters just keep popping up out of the woodwork. Uh and in the first film, you know, you really do just have those four characters and you're really with them the whole way through. But this mm-hmm. time it's like it feels like every ten minutes they're like adding in another character, they're bouncing around in terms of like different from different characters' perspectives. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you know, you keep going back to Ray as well and his his uh, pilgrimage to try to get to to Julie. So, yeah, it's it's a there's a lot happening. It's very busy. Shout out as well to Bill Cobbs who plays the the kind of the elderly hotel worker who is like a long long character actor. He was in the People Under the Stairs and oh, yeah. a bunch of like other amazing um, 1980s and 70s films. Not always horror, but. There's a completely unexplicable scene where they try to reckon us into thinking that he might be the hookman because he's seen doing some sort of voodoo practice. I was like, what? Yeah. Well, you know, what fucking white nonsense is this? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, well, this is also why this franchise really reminds me of the Scooby Doo movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also because of the, you know, the actors, of course, but. They they try that in Scooby Doo too. I don't know if you've seen the live action Scooby Doo movie. I hope I you have. have. I have indeed. But it, they do a similar thing there, and it's also like the premise of the being on like this tropical island. Like mm-hmm. this movie is like they're I, they're they'd be a great double bill, you know. <laughs> but yeah, a they great try a Freddie Prince Jr. double bill it, exactly. Um, although Fred Jones is really the role he was meant to play. Let's let, let's be honest. He's, yes, he's he's serve his his energy is more in alignment with who Fred Jones is as a character rather than Ray. It's but, actually perfect casting. But on <laughs> on the subject of Ray, though, um, let's talk a little bit about Ray, what he's doing, and where does he stand in the world of teen horror bad boyfriends Ooh, well he's definitely on the list he's close but I, I wouldn't say he's top of the list because i mean i think i think billy loomis might take that mm-hmm. that crowning mm-hmm. crowning gem but i mean he's bad in that he's especially in this film i really don't understand his his like his actions at all mm-hmm. he gets because from the very beginning he shows up and he's he gets in a fight with julie and then he leaves 
<laughs> and he's like, I, I don't have time for your trauma. Bye. <laughs> and it's really weird that they would want to go back to Southport after everything that had happened. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I'm a fisherman. That's my calling. I have to go back to Southport. I'm like, there's there's other coasts you could go to, my friend, if you yeah. really are set on the fisherman thing. It's so like, I'm sorry that your girlfriend and you and you experienced massive, like a deranged killer trying to kill you for la- just a year ago. Like she just doesn't want to go back to that fucking place. She's trying to be a lawyer, dude. Maybe, maybe have show some empathy. Yeah, yeah, and like especially because he wants to go back on the anniversary. I'm like, did you not think that this was going to dredge up? uncomfortable memories and like mm-hmm. emotions in i mean clearly he's just a robot because he does not have that same like emotional spectrum but that's why i don't understand why they're a couple but they're the a couple because other- they're hot okay yes yes no you're right you're right how could i how can i forget but also just the premise of him in this film where he is so angry at Julie about not wanting to come back to Southport to the point where he, well, I guess it's not his fault technically that I didn't show up to go to the Bahamas, but he doesn't want to go in the first instance. And yet the next moment he's like, yeah, I'm going to propose to her. I'm like, I know. what? I know. What? <laughs> I was like, because I hadn't rewatched this film in so long. When he pulled out the ring, I was like, okay, what? Like, A, you're ju- you've just been a massive dick to your girlfriend. Like, how does how do you go from that to proposing to her? You you sounded like you were you were gonna do a Ross and be like, oh, we're we're on a break. Um, yeah, and then also, Ray, babes, why are you bringing a fucking diamond proposal ring to your fishing boat? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Like, oh that's man, bound to be lost. What are you doing? Well, we've already established that Ray doesn't have a lot happening between his ears you know like he's just also like not to be paranoid but like if you're i don't know what his relationship with john hawks's character is like john hawks is just there in the background and then he's like whipping out this diamond ring and showing it to him and you're like are you friends is that what i don't know if i was this guy i'd probably just like punch you a little bit and steal the ring or something yeah it's again that's why it's like nobody acts like a a real person in this movie and in the first movie, it again because I really do feel like there's there's some great explorations. It's not fully fleshed out, but explorations of like how people are suffering through trauma and, mm-hmm. and grief, and and also like moving into adulthood. And I mean, Ray's character isn't a great example of that in the first film either. But this, at least, people acted like people kind of in the first movie. Mm-hmm. This one, it's just like everybody's a Scooby Doo ca- character. Like everybody's yeah. just a caricature of a person. On the on the Scooby Doo note. Do you think the whodunit aspect of the sequel works? Absolutely not. No. No. <laughs> Go off, Alec. Listen, Anna. I mean, we talked about we talked about the first one being convoluted. I I just watched this movie a few days ago and I still am like, what the hell happened at the end? Like I was like, there's just too many people. There's just there's so much happens in like the last tw- 20 minutes of this film. I'm just like I didn't, well, A, I didn't really care. I didn't really care. I was just yeah. along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And a, and B, it's, again, it's it's so convoluted that by the time I've finally wrapped my head around who it is, which, can we, like, go through who it is? Because it's, yeah. it's, it's Will, mm-hmm. and he's, he's Ben's son, which I always hate this when they're like, oh, he secretly had a son that just never came up in the first film. I know. 
But then is there somebody else there too? It's 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 Ben. Ben comes back. Uh, right. Okay, so that's the thing. I'm like again in the first movie, we were talking about like the lack of blood and it feeling like he's not really a paranormal figure. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's menacing and I think part of the fear of him as a as a villain is that he is just he's not mythic. He feels real and mm-hmm. he's just killing people with his hook and and then you bring him back again and it's like it reaches levels of like Friday the 13th part whatever it is where he gets struck by lightning and you're like <laughs> okay all right so this is what we've descended into now yeah it's like i know that we never we only see his hook hand come up in the fishing net at the end of the first one which is like a great little oh well you know we'll find his body one day it will turn up eventually which is you know you need to see the killer dead dead at the end in order to know that they're fully dead so the setup was there but also now it's like oh you're trying to do the two killers and now ben is a will is ben's son and you do the i hate the line of dialogue where the actor was like will ben's son oh i know get it i know that well okay that's just that's the point where i'm like uh like i like flip the table but yeah. I'm I'm also kind of like, this is no longer even trying to be a horror film. Like, it's no longer trying to be in any way scary. Like, it stops mm-hmm. being scary. It's not, this movie isn't scary. It's it's yeah. just, it's just silly. It's the kind of movie I would have a great time seeing in cinema on opening weekend. Mm-hmm. When you've got like, you know, when it's like Scream 2 vibes in the cinema and everybody's just going crazy. Like, it would be a very fun movie to watch with a group of people. But it's like... It is, it's it's a piss poor horror film. It really is. And like the fact that I, I'm more emotionally invested in Tyrell getting laid with his girlfriend than I am in Will and Ben's, you know, <laughs> revenge plot is quite telling. Well, and not to kind of work backwards, but other things about this movie where I'm like, nobody's acting like a person. I'm like, mm-hmm. after there's all these killings happening and you know you know that there's some sort of threat on the island julie james is like i'm just gonna hop in the the tanning bed oh my god oh my god that scene i'm like what what is that scene the amount of slow motion panning of jennifer love hewitt jennifer love hewitt's body i'm like have i accidentally switched over to a softcore (laughs) porn like what the fuck is going on why are we getting five full minutes of her getting undressed and settling into a tanning bed well, because the film kind of did that in it, the first film was guilty of that too, in terms of the male gaziness of that character specifically. Mm-hmm. But man, do they just double down on it in this one? Mm-hmm. It's like it's just it's just hit shots to- all the time. Yeah. Like you're all you're just it's always the camera is always panning to her cleavage constantly, mm-hmm. and the way they dress her, it's just like. And I get it, Jennifer Love Hewitt is a beautiful lady, but oh man, it is just excessive needlessly excessive it is very excessive but it's also like it adds nothing to the story it's like yeah i get but the framing of basically like you say just tit shots all the time i was like did you even try to shoot her face (laughs) like (laughs) at all i know i know and also by the way they never do that with ray not a not a single not a single shirtless uh take of ray i should add so (sighs) it's just unfair it is. The double standard. 
And is there is there anything else about this film that just it sounds like it kind of infuriated both of us as a as a teen slasher? But is there anything else that you think just makes it has aged really badly about it? Oh God! I mean, how much more time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I I think the entire thing mm-hmm. is it just like it's like this domino effect, like every little thing adds up and it's just like a house of cards basically Mm -hmm. with just how ridiculous the premise is and i know we've kind of been talking a lot of shit about it Mm -hmm. but all of that being said it is an incredibly campy ride Mm -hmm. and i do think i think it's like it's worth watching because well a because you get a fantastic performance from brandy Mm -hmm. and as we said you know there's the merits are you get all these kind of these great character actors coming in genre actors coming in and doing these little cameos jack black not not uh, part of that but nope. um but everything else about it is just like the premise is so stupid that <laughs> i i i kind of like losing two hours of my life to it mm-hmm. and shall we briefly talk about the second fake out ending oh <laughs> this okay well i like so i said i when we were talking about the first mm-hmm. one i like the first one's mm-hmm. ending i think Again, I think it's like that one-two punch right before the end of the film, mm-hmm. and you kind of need that because it's just it's in and it's also in keeping with like the homage that it's playing to from earlier slashers. But this one, yeah, this one is just it's nonsensical. It's well, yeah, because at least in the first one, the idea that he could be dead, he he might not be dead because he didn't recover a body. I mean, this one, the girl shoots him dead, like dead literally into a grave. Mm-hmm. So. The idea that he's just under her bed is is just absurd. So absurd. Oh no, it, it kind of, that was just like eye rollingly bad. I mean, truly. And also they so Ray and Julie marry and they buy a house. Well, in yeah, Southport. that too. That too. Like, okay, so after all of that. Again, it's like we've hit the reset button and she has no trauma anymore mm-hmm. and like things between them are great and like she's like, oh, you know me so well. I'm like, does he? <laughs> yeah. Ugh. And also Ray trying to do sexy banter with Julie. Oh, uh, God. God. Again, no chemistry. No, no, no chemistry. Zero. Bring back Helen. Bring back Helen Shivers. Fucking truly. I would have given anything for Helen Shivers' like zombie body <laughs> to appear and make this interesting again. To wrap up our chat about the I Know What You Did Last Summer films, do you think together they hold up? Would you recommend people rewatch them? <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is a, you're tri- this is a loaded question you're tricking me um i don't because i don't know what the right answer is um, there's no right or wrong answer to this i okay i'm well i'm trash anna and so <laughs> so i'm gonna say these should definitely be in your list of, of to watch 100 percent if you identify as trash then yes rewatch them is that what you're saying that, yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. The first one is like, I think it's genuinely a good 90s teen horror film. I think Mm -hmm. it's a very worthy addition to that era of films. Mm -hmm. And it's not, again, not Scream, nothing is, but it has a lot going for it. But the second one is 
is the is a it's a hot mess, mm-hmm. and I think it's worth watching just to sh- see the sheer absurdity of that. Like, if you haven't experienced, I still know what you did last summer. You should just, you know, you you need to give yourself that at least one time in your life. I think, mm-hmm. and maybe I would almost say like, don't watch these films back to back. Oh, like, interesting. Because because they're just so tonally different mm-hmm. that despite being part of the same franchise, I think they benefit from being watched in separate viewings. I think mm-hmm. they benefit from, like, I still know what you did last summer. I think benefits from, like, you kind of remember what the first one's like mm-hmm. so that you don't, you're, you're much more forgiving. <laughs> That's very good <laughs> advice. Don't double bill this. I would say, if you want to get a good double bill, I still know what you did last summer and Scooby-Doo. You know what? That is a ballsy double bill and I respect it completely. Really what I'm just I want to transition into is can we just talk about Scooby Doo? Because <laughs> big Scooby Doo fan. I know who to call when I'm gonna do a Scooby Doo episode. <laughs> um Ali, thank you so much for your time and for your insight in both these films. Can you tell people where they can find more of your work online? Yeah, so I think I'd mentioned before that I'm not I'm not really online that much mm-hmm. uh individually, but my quarantine project was I, I've always been in, you know, obviously into horror, but into B-movies in general. And I've been wanting to get a VHS player for a really long time to okay. sort of wade into the nostalgia of it all. Mm-hmm. And I, I got one over quarantine and me and my partner started collecting VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. And for us, the weirder, the better. If it's, if we don't like to get, you know, more mainstream films that everybody's heard of, we like to find really terrible B-movies as well as like films that might be only on VHS, like how-to things or things that just, you know, in the 90s when they were just putting everything on VHS and and selling it. Mm -hmm. Collecting those sort of oddities has been, and, and just finding the treasure amongst it has been such a fun hobby. And... I just decided to start an Instagram because I was like, ah, I should be like taking funny moments from these films or, you know, at least the the covers of VHSs, like the physical media is so, uh, it's just so much fun and we don't get that anymore in the age of streaming. So mm-hmm. uh, I have an Instagram that is called the underscore VHS underscore graveyard. Okay. And, and essentially it's just me having a good time with my my VHS tapes. <laughs> That sounds like a blast. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. 